what do you want to be when you're 90 or whatever your, your last few years might be, 60, 110, who knows? What do you want to be? Do you want to be someone who never failed miserably or someone that really tried most of the things you wanted to try? You got to think seriously about that. I actually wrote about it in the book. I really think you do. And there's some research out there with old folks who, that tells us most people regret not living more fully. They don't regret, they don't sit around basking in the glory of never making errors. I avoided catastrophes. They would rather, to use the examples I'm using, know that they left corporate life, tried, lived half that dream, couldn't make it quite work and failed and went back to a, a maybe a better version, hopefully, of a corporate job. They would much rather go through that than never have tried at all. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for episode 57 of the Impact Makers Podcast. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Todd Dewitt with you. I met Dr. Dewitt several years ago when I was just getting my start as a professional speaker, and we both shared the stage at a regional conference. At that time, he was a successful university professor teaching leadership and innovation to MBA students, but he didn't look like or sound like most of the professors that I'd come across in my academic career. Big, tall, bald, and covered in tattoos had never greeted me when I walked into a classroom at school. So, of course, I was intrigued to hear what this guy had to say about leadership, and I was not disappointed. With a fresh perspective, an authentic message, and some great stories, he captivated the audience and inspired people to think differently. Since that time, we've become good friends, and I've continued to learn from him over the years as he wrote books, left the academic world to pursue a career as a full-time speaker, and became one of LinkedIn Learning's most popular trainers. Now, with his unique brand of edgy leadership, Dr. Todd Dewitt is a best-selling author, one of the most in-demand leadership keynote speakers in the world, and he's motivated millions to perform at higher levels and lead with true authenticity. His latest book is called Live Hard, and it's a collection of 20 inspiring stories packed with advice about living life more fully. I think you'll find Todd's frank advice and unique perspective refreshing, and I'm sure you'll get some great takeaways from our conversation today. Welcome, Todd Do It to the Impact Makers podcast. And let me correct myself, Dr. Todd Do It. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm well, lady. How are you? Great to see you. I'm good. Do I need to uh, be be professional and call you Dr. Do It? No, no, no. Todd will do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I have been blessed to uh, know you and know of you for several years now and followed you and have your books. I actually, when I set up my bookcase here behind me, found my show, show, my, show your ink. Uh, yeah. book. So I am excited to talk to you today, not only to catch up, but to have you share some of the wisdom that you share about leadership and authenticity and some of those topics with others. But first, tell us a little bit about who Dr. Todd Jewett is. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you asking. Um, I'm the luckiest person you're going to have on this show in a long time. I was doing something 
eight, nine years ago now that I thought was the greatest job in the world that I couldn't believe they paid me to do. I was a professor at a school in Ohio going to Wright State University. So the, the background is very simple, undergrad, MBA, worked in consulting for a while, Anderson, Ernst & Young, and then got a PhD at Texas A&M and ended up being a, in organizational behavior, ended up being a professor. Loved that. Taught MBA students for 10 years in Ohio. I wrote dorky scientific papers and then increasingly started doing consulting and uh, training and straight speaking, which became a bigger part of my life later. And I thought it was the greatest job in the world. I loved being in the ivory tower and having young minds who half of my students were managers, other half wanted to be managers. And, and I got to tell them the good, the bad, the ugly tips, tricks, strategies. It was so, it was so fun. I really had a lot of passion in that job. And then, uh, as you know well, life has its own plan. I don't care how much you plan, <laughs> understatement of the decade. My phone just started ringing more and more for speaking. And I didn't know what to think about that at first in like a real kind of rookie. I just said yes when they called and, and didn't ask for a dime <laughs> uh -huh. and went and gave a lot of talks around this little place called Dayton, Ohio. And it grew very slowly and the phone kept ringing. And then I'm down in Cincy and then I'm all over Ohio and then the Midwest and then the country and then beyond. And, and eventually a few years into that, I had to make a decision and it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made, which was to walk away from a fat paycheck for life uh, as a tenured senior professor and go solo like you, crazy like you, Jennifer. And I moved to Houston, Texas because I have uh, an Aggie network, the Texas A&M Aggies. I have an Aggie network really big here from where I went for the PhD as well as family and friends here in, in a healthy, big growing city. So to do this entrepreneurial you know, side hustle full-time thing, this was a good choice for me. And I've been here eight years now. And during that time, I've been making some real strides with online courses through LinkedIn learning and new books and speaking and related things. I swear to you, I can't believe I get paid to do the things I do. No joke. You know, it's the best job in the world. Well, I've got so many questions, even though I, I followed your journey through a lot of that. But back to when you were in the consulting world, I mean, sure. you've always been unique and your approach and and even how you look and, and <laughs> you know, you're a big guy and got the ink and all that stuff. What prompted you to originally say, I want to go get this PhD? You know, it's a great question. And we all have our own version, I think, of answering this, which is, hey, when did you find out that you were making progress, but not in the right place and felt maybe like a square peg uh, round hole situation? It was Ernst & Young for me. I didn't last very long in the big box places. Um, I loved them because they did great work. They hired smart people, talented people from great schools. And, and I learned I was bright as they were. That was nice to learn. On the other hand, I didn't fit in extremely well. And there's actually a story in Show Your Ink, which kind of put me on the map uh, about a boss who ripped me up one way and down another when a client said to him something somewhat disparaging about a tattoo of mine they saw. Ooh. And yeah, and it was not a good moment. I was actually expecting some praise from this guy from a project I had just finished and I thought I was looking good. And apparently in his eyes, I was looking anything but good. Oh, wow. And it was, it was a hard moment and it made me start getting serious for the first time as a uh, 26, 27 year old, I think, um, thinking about how much do I fit and how much does it matter to fit? How much am I willing to invest in taking the risks required to find better fit so that I don't have to think to myself, this is good, not great. I can start dreaming about a place where I go, I can't believe they pay me to do this. This feels wonderful. That was 
a big impetus for me thinking about leaving to get a PhD because I knew I loved relationships as a huge part of business. I knew I was smart and curious. I knew I found uh, people in general uh, fascinating. And my observation in, in big box consulting was that lots of brain power, but not necessarily lots of great relationships. In fact, one of the weak issues I always saw in every project was relationship oriented, not tool oriented or skill oriented, but relationship oriented. That really stuck with me. And that's why when I narrowed it down to two or three things I knew I might consider as a social scientist or a fledgling wannabe social scientist, I went with org behavior because I got to study people and aspects of psychology and related disciplines, all focused on something that I know is interesting for me, which is business and business relationships. So that's, that's how that started. Was the thought that you were going to be a professor with that kind of uh, education? So I thought I want to look at business and people while being removed from them and able to be more relaxed and maybe a little different if I want to be. Because every, as you know, every work performance has metrics or things that matter. Metrics that matter for performance and then norms of behavior that matter. Well, in the ivory tower, assuming you get the PhD, you have to then prove on performance that you can do the one thing that matters beyond everything else, which is to publish scientific research uh, in quantities dictated differently by different schools. And then if you can do that, guess what? On the norms of behavior thing, they almost don't exist. You can be <laughs> as casual, strange, and eccentric as you want to be as long as your students think that they're they're seeing value and as long as you're publishing research. And I loved teaching and I was decent at the research side of the world there too. And so I could get away with uh, more quickly embracing exactly who I am. I know your students loved you as well, right? They had. Oh, I love them. I miss them. I miss them. That was the hardest part was walking away from them. Yeah. So somewhere along the way, while you were at uh, university, was it University of Dayton, right? Uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm grateful to know a ton of students from UD that went to my program for grad school, but I was at uh, Wright State University in Dayton, okay. Ohio. So the big state school, the little private school was UD. Mm -hmm. So while you were at Wright State, you decided to, or did you decide you just started, ended up speaking to organizations. I think that's where I kind of came across you. We were speaking at a conference on social media or something, but you started being invited to speak. How did that happen? Mostly it was for me to start was two things. First was students. So they would graduate my program and they would go and call me a year later. Hey, we got this meeting coming up. I remember you were loud and funny. The guy we had last year wasn't funny. Would you tell some of your stories? And I would say yes. And, and that's where it started at first was just the students. And then you have audience members. And from then on, and this is the only thing I have to say about marketing, because I wish I understood marketing, is that if you're good at, at speaking, you're infecting everyone in a positive way in your audience. And they go tell people and 100% or almost 100% of everything I've done uh, has been word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the second group was HR related people who I met through different organizations. And they were the first who started paying me. Hey, we don't pay often and we don't have much, but I heard all about you. Would you come out and give a talk and we'll throw you a couple pennies. And uh, I was amazed someone would throw a couple pennies at me to give a talk. That just seemed absurd. The scientist in me thought that was incredibly absurd. <laughs> right. I think the last time I saw you speak here in Cincinnati at one of the HR Association meetings, I was driving yesterday on the road listening to a podcast about speaking and how you should be prepared for all these things. And I've heard this before. And, and one of them was, you know, you need to have an emergency plan as a speaker, you know, for when the fire alarm or whatnot goes off. And, and I will never forget fire alarm went off right in the middle of your talk and you handled it great. And, the, you know, it's like every audience, the people in the room were like, I'm not leaving. You're like, <laughs> 
but that we was came awkward. Back, yeah, we came back. You kept going. And I'm like, I'm glad I got to witness that because I don't know that I would have known what to do. So <laughs> I remember vaguely thinking, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that it, no one really left and it went OK. But yeah, things happen. You're right. That's funny. So somewhere after you started uh, being invited to speak elsewhere and sharing your stories, you decided to write, was it your first book, Show Your Ink? Actually, I had one that came out before then, and it's no longer uh, in print because, well, it's a learning curve. You know this as well as I do. Each new facet of our professional lives that we take on is a learning curve. Writing, I started good, not great. I've gotten really good. I think in another 10 years, I'm going to be great. (laughs) And uh, the first one was good. And uh, it turned out I just wanted to mold as I learned and got feedback and sold a few copies and got feedback. I wanted to mold it into a slightly different shape. And the information that was in that one was kind of later absorbed in different ways and in, in different projects. So it's still kind of out there. And then I realized something one day a few years ago. I was like, okay, everyone says you're supposed to use your strengths. Well, what are your strengths? And that was easy to think about because I've only got a few. And one of them was using stories, both in the classroom and increasingly as a professional speaker. And I thought, well, why don't I just put out a book of, of some of my stories? And I was scared to death to do that for a year or two, because what, you're going to give away the show? Are you crazy? And then I realized, I'll spare you the long rationale, that, that it really wasn't a threat. And I wrote them all down for the first time. And I had 20 stories in this little short book called Show Your Ring. And people love it. Why? Because stories, for all the reasons we know, people enjoy. And yet in our world, in a book format, that is very rare still. It's still not common at all to have just a book of stories uh, or the related thing, a book of essays and such. Mostly we have traditional books. And so I did it and people have enjoyed it and it's sold pretty well and made a lot of people remember me and keep calling me. And that's why we were talking offline. I just got this out recently. It's called Live Hard. It's my second book of stories, 20 new stories, slightly different topical focus. Uh, And so I'm staying with that for as long as I'm in the game, even though I put out other types of books as well. These story books are what makes me most excited. And I think what people remember the most, and they end up creating uh, keynotes out of the stories in the books. So it works, it dovetails really nicely. Yeah. So live hard, thoughts on living fearlessly, creating success and embracing the future came out November 27th, 2020. Certainly an interesting time and an interesting year. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> So how can, how can, uh, you know, let's amplify kind of what's happened with that book for people who might be interested in it. What's it, you know, it's stories, but what's it about? Thank you. I mean, it's uh, the first book was really about authenticity and aspects of professional relationships in general. Um, this is a little more focused on uh, living more fully, taking principled risks, trying to get rid of that monster under the bed, embracing creativity, change, innovation, that related ball of ideas in life and in professional life. Uh, And so the stories really get into times I took risks and it worked for me. And and other times it was embarrassing. I failed miserably And stories people have shared with me uh, in their experiences as well. Times that they decided to stop saying what if and start living loud, even if the consequences sometimes are difficult because you never know what's going to happen until what? Until you try. And this book is supposed to be stories that make you absolutely positively want to go try. Mm -hmm. Live hard. Do you have a, a favorite story or one that you could share that could whet our appetites that's in the book? Yeah. So I've got one I'm excited about. I was just, um, again, we were just talking about this and I, I booked a couple of new TEDx talks that are coming up. I'm, I'm going to focus on one story from this book for one of those talks and it's called The Price of Deviance. And the story is about me trying to figure out how to teach graduate business students 
why, on the one hand, it sounds so fun and sexy and all that to be a change agent and push for innovation and improvement at work and all these notions that are lofty and beautiful and sexy, right? Truth is, they are fraught with peril. Anyone with any experience and honesty will tell you they are fraught with peril. And being uh, out in the front as a pioneer means you can often get arrows in the back. So I'm trying to think about how to get students to get past the simple beauty of these ideas, which are fun as heck to read about in HBR, and get into the reality of trying to enact those things at work. And the risks that are involved, because it's all about risk. Anytime you say, how come, what if, we should, listen to me, those are risks. And so what I thought I would do is devise a series of small activities, and the story just recounts them, where I would ask them to do things we don't normally do, and then watch them as they do them, and then debrief and talk about how they felt and why they felt that way. And one night I walked into class with a very large armful, uh, a box actually, full of little jars of bubble solution. And they looked at me like, I'm crazy. I'm very used to that. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'll explain later. But right now, just do as I ask you and don't think too deeply. Just engage the activity. I want all of you, when I'm done, just to come down, grab one of these, and then leave the classroom. Okay? Don't stay in here. Go wander through the business school and share some bubbles. Just, just pull out your wand and do what you're supposed to do. I don't care where you go. I mean, if you want to impress me, you should probably go into, I don't know, at least one or two classrooms and share some bubbles with them. Who, who doesn't love bubbles? I mean, come on. And they looked at me like I'm crazy. And then I said, go and stood there past the awkward moment, which again, I'm used to. And the first couple crazies jump down there, grab the bubbles and leave. And after that, permission's been granted, which is the way it happens at work too. The rest then follow, grab bubbles, go out. Now, 20 minutes later, I make some noises outside the door. They all come back and they're excited and they're crazy. And I asked them how you felt. And they said, I felt silly and I felt vulnerable and I felt stupid and I felt scared. I heard scared. I remember thinking that, whoa, whoa why'd you feel scared? First crazy, unexpected, can't plan for it lesson that came from this deviant uh, exercise was a janitor who I'd known, not by name, but by, hey, how you doing? Every time I saw him, who was very upset because the students were blowing bubbles. Lots of them, a class full of 30 plus MBA students. All over the floor, he had just cleaned. <laughs> a tile floor he had just cleaned. That was the first thing. The second thing was a student that said, I think you might be in a little trouble. And I said, uh-oh, I think this is perfect, I'm thinking, because that's the purpose of this. There was an econ professor and it turned out only two of my students together for comfort because there's strength in numbers, went into a classroom unannounced that was in session from another professor and stayed in there for all of five seconds, said nothing, just smiled and shared some bubbles and then walked out and the professor blew a gasket for the interruption. <laughs> and when I say blew a gasket, here's the back end of the story. I get home and there's a long email waiting for me from my colleague about how upset they are with my teaching methods and how worthless they are and how my students deserve a better education. I'm not kidding. And I will be speaking to the Dean about your behavior because it's inappropriate. And he did speak to the Dean and the Dean did speak to me and congratulated me for not being so boring. But you know, <laughs> I then took that email and I went to class the next week with the same students and I read them the email. <laughs> and I said, do you now understand how a simple act that you think, even collectively, might be kind of worth doing can be viewed radically different in the eyes of others? And that no matter what you think, how others perceive it is always different and therein lies the risk. It's so easy to say, let's talk about change and do something different. Isn't that wonderful? There are risks associated with it. And I did lots of 
little activities, but that was one of my funnest ones to take something that's so simple and childlike and watch how it just inflames others who weren't prepared for it and didn't understand it. So I can't wait to share that story uh, at a TEDx. So how do you come up with, you know, I'm always fascinated, I guess, maybe since I do similar work, you know, speak to groups and try to motivate them to make changes. Maybe I come up with examples along the way too, but how do you, as a professor, I'm always, you know, professors and pastors I'm, I'm, I'm um, enamored with because you have to come up with so much new content every day or every week. How do you come up with that experiment and what were you thinking? What was the goal of the experiment before it happened? It sounds like you got some some extra results with it. Sure. Well, it just was better than I thought. Uh, the goal is to make them uncomfortable because no, no, no growth ever happens until you get uncomfortable. And you certainly can't develop a team to care about creativity, innovation, and change until they become modestly okay with discomfort. That's just the nature of learning. And so I wanted that to be the primary goal. Involving other people the way we did was just a little extra emphatic uh, stuff. It was mm-hmm. great. Uh, I had seen someone do a standing on your chairs thing, which later I actually evolved into something I use as a speaker. I don't know if you ever saw me do that. I saw someone in a classroom do something once about standing on chairs. And it was so absurd and it worked for this person uh, that I just started thinking about weird things I could do to make people uncomfortable. I ended up having them get in a line, we're walking, I'm taking you single file, ready? Okay, now everyone turn around and follow me backwards. And I made them walk around backwards because no one ever does that. And it's absurd. Another one, the point is, they feel weird. Others see them doing it. They have to process that they're not uh, adhering to normal social norms. Another one was sitting in the classroom going, everyone take out something to write with, describe the table you see before you. And they looked at the table and they started writing descriptive words. And then I said, okay, put your pen down. Everyone lay on the floor. And I lay on the floor and they look at me like an idiot. (laughs) They slowly start to lay on the floor. And I said, what do you see underneath? Don't say anything out loud. Just look carefully. Okay. And then they'd sit up and I'd say, keep writing. What do you see now? Perspective is everything. Uh, how awkward did you feel? We'll talk about all that. The point is shaking up routines. We know this, uh, the whole world of creativity. And that was where I started as a scholar before I morphed into a leadership guy. We, we know that breaking routines uh, behaviorally breaks mental routines and, and really does improve perspectives and increase creativity. So that's all I'm essentially trying to do is to get people uncomfortable and out of routines uh, in the classroom because it does tend to enhance learning, at least in the areas that I'm teaching. Yeah. So when you go into, or um, maybe you don't as much as you did in the past now, but you go into large corporations with leadership teams and lots of rules and norms, do you do similar things with leaders and organizations to, to make them uncomfortable? And, and do they get it after you've done that for the most part? Uh, they do. It's easier if my experience, and I've been in front of a lot of groups, it's easier to get groups of leaders, actual teams, especially where they all know each other and have a hierarchy. It's easier to get them uncomfortable because they're all radical adherents to social norms, even more than kids in a classroom or young adults in a classroom. Uh, so it's easier to get them to feel odd and uncomfortable. It's harder to get them to want to stay with it, call it a righteous experiment, and the next day use something they learned to shake things up because that's the power of culture, the power of routines and their momentum, the power of adherence to norms within uh, most organizational structures. 
nonetheless, I, I love fighting that fight. And for every person that looks at me like I'm crazy when I talk to, they all love it. They all say that was fun. That was educational. You're right. The only question is how many will go do something or try to do something a little differently as a result. And I know that with the students, my hit rate was above 50%. And that makes me happy with corporate audiences who pay me to come inside and talk to a team or stand at a conference. I can guess, don't have science here. I can guess the hit rate is, is 10 to 30%, 10 to 20%, which still makes me a very happy person because later I'll get emails. Hey, I went back to work. You admit an anecdote you thought was a throwaway probably about something you could do in a meeting to get people engaged and uncomfortable. And I did it. And, it, and you know, I hear stories. And then, by the way, where do I get stories? I get them from all the crazy things I try. I get them from all the people who tried anything crazy I ever suggested. Uh, and they become part of this. So I got a story in here uh, called License to Lead. And it's about a student who was in class a couple of years uh, ago, she was in class. And after she was gone for a couple years, she called me, hey, let's have lunch. I got I need your help. I got to tell you something. I, I want to talk. And so you asked where I got stories. I said, yes, I'd love to have lunch. And I sat down mm -hmm. and she told me the story about her boss, who was a problematic person uh, who I actually met. So it was a relatively small town, uh, smart and accomplished and problematic in that he didn't see women as as his equal in the profession he was in, I'll just say, and take my word for it, it was just true. And as a result, overtly in ways he was unaware of, he, he was not kind to several females he worked with uh, who were his subordinates. Mm -hmm. And she had taken that to the point of not being able to stand it anymore. And it ended up in a situation where going to work was painful and getting out of the car was painful and running to the car after work was all she could do before she broke down in tears. And, and, and no one deserves that. And so we had a great conversation about what to do. And I found out randomly after the book came out and she read it, I told her that reference of that person over there, that's you. Remember when you shared that story? And she's like, oh my God. And she gave me the, 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 the ending that's not in the book that I didn't, didn't know about until she reached out. She decided to take part of my advice and act on her own bravery, form a coalition with some others who had really gone through some rough stuff with this person and try for the umpteenth time when most of us would have quit, I think. Mm -hmm. and speak up and say, here's what's happening. Here's what we expect. Let's change the dynamic of what we're doing because it's, it's not working. But they didn't, they did it all the right ways. They weren't accusatory, et cetera. They were, they were comfortable and strong and together. And they swear for the first time, this umpteenth time they did it, the message came through. So before she finally hit, I'm out of here, I quit. Before she hit that, she tried again. The theory here is try again, try again. Don't try once and run. And it worked. And she's been promoted several times since then. And she's uh, basically a peer with this person now. And the worst of the behaviors, no one changes radically from a little feedback, but we can change significantly. And the worst of those behaviors are now very, very low and, and not very present. And it's a much, much better situation. And I was so happy to find that out. That's always great to hear that that what you did made a difference in someone's life. So over the years, you have found some sweet spots, and one of them is around authenticity. Tell me more about what your thoughts are or what your work is around authenticity. It seemed like that was kind of a a buzzword for a while. Maybe it's gone away a little bit, but the the need for yeah. it is still there. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. It's one of those 20 buzzwords that comes around for a couple of years, goes away for five, comes back as popular again. Uh, and the reason most of those happen is because they're kind of eternal or universal truths. And I was thinking, as I thought about 
show your ink and various activities I was involved in. So what's the thing here? What's the value you add? What is the expertise? And I realized a lot of it was around helping people be real. And authenticity is the word that's most socially acceptable, understood and popular that captures that. And so I, I started using it uh, as uh, claiming it as a focus of what I was doing because I was without knowing it in terms of the things I was writing and speaking about. And I have found, oh my goodness, that it resonates with people. I can't tell you, Jennifer, how many times I get done with a gig online, followed by an electronic message or in person where they pull you aside after. There used to be this thing called in-person speaking years ago. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they pull you aside and they go, you know, I feel like I've been living a lie. I feel like I've been living as a trapped animal in a cage and I feel far more able now and I don't want to lose it, which is why I'm going to go home and write that letter, that email, that conversation, that whatever uh, that I've been wanting to do, but I haven't felt, you know, that it's it's the wise thing to do, but I know I have to do it. And you helped me figure that out. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how much it's fulfilling to have someone go, I feel empowered now and I'm going to go claim a little better version of the life that I want. Thank you. I, I can't believe that you know, a couple stories from Show Your Ink gave people the, the cojones to go do that, but they did. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, well, I want to live a more authentic life, which is probably a wildly <laughs> nebulous statement, but <laughs> yeah, beautifully, how, how does one become more authentic? Or is that something you can pursue? <laughs> sure, it is something one can pursue. And it's a beautifully nebulous statement because it's a different thing for all of us, of course. Uh, and I have a couple different answers to that. Number one is you, you got to stop censoring as much. Everyone over censors. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, and, and this is a fairly scientific comment, we over censor because we have a sensitivity for good reasons. We'd like to be safe. We'd like to be paid. We'd like to be not hated by others, et cetera. We have a sensitivity to norms without being able to articulate them well. We sense them very well and then adhere to them. We try not to break the rules. Stop censoring as much. So what I would say is take a step forward in the, uh, you know, pull the curtain back a little, not full, put a toe in the water, don't jump in. I'm not saying Friday you show up in a suit like you always do, and then Monday you show up in a tie-dye and flip-flops. I'm not saying that. That's jumping in. Don't do that. Take a little step forward and watch how people react and ask yourself, can I learn to deal with that, navigate that, use that as a skill. Number two, accept, and this is the killer for most people, and this is why they dream instead of living the dream. You have to accept that people will not always universally love you. Stop trying to maximize how much people like you. Mm -hmm. Because it turns out happiness isn't about maximizing how much everyone likes you. It's about building a tribe of people that are similar-ish in values and interests because then liking each other is freaking easy. Can you get the right people around you over time by your choice of associations, by where you invest and don't invest in, in relationships and how you choose jobs and roles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one, you've got to really censor less and watch how people react and ask how you feel about that. Are you willing to deal with that? Number two, you've got to accept. And if you can't do this, then it's just going to be a catchphrase for you. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't sugarcoat much, as you know you got to be okay with the fact that some people aren't going to like you. So for example, I'm a, 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 I do well as a speaker. I walk in and have a great time and people like me. Do 100% of the people love me? Does every client go, best ever, can't wait to have them back? No, because that doesn't happen for anyone ever, including me. There's another story in Live Hard called Thank You Hell Gigs and Haters, something like that, because, <laughs> because everyone's had them. 
In fact, I could brag if I wanted to, I could brag about great gigs I've had, or I could tell you about five of the thousand that were nightmares where they wanted to shoot me. One of them, I almost got pulled off stage. This actually happened uh, three, four years ago. True story. If you want to talk about authenticity, you got to talk about taking the good with the bad because you're no longer playing the game of trying to please everyone. Anyhow, I was on stage emoting and telling stories and having a good time. And I got to a story you might remember that that's part of the, the typical show you're in about my dad and some of the things he taught me during his struggle with cancer years ago. Uh, audiences love this and it goes well 99% of the time. This gig was not in that 99%. And I'm telling the story thinking to myself, this is great. I couldn't see the audience because the lights were bright, big gig. Yeah. And I, I didn't hear much because there's no laughing in this story. It's a heavy story and, and good, positive, loving story, but heavy. Anyhow, uh, the, the person who managed the event came up during while I'm talking to the stage and said, you've only got three minutes. And I thought I had about 15 minutes left and I don't mismanage this way uh, hardly ever. And I thought how embarrassing and you got it. And I started thinking, what do I do? And, I, and then he came back about two minutes later as he could tell I was wrapping up. He said, you're okay, you're okay. I'm sorry, you've got another 10. And I was like, this is the strangest thing ever. What's going on? I found out when the lights came up and I got polite applause, only polite applause. I found out what happened. There was a member of the audience who was an executive at the organization who was going through something difficult with a loved one regarding cancer. They mm -hmm. became triggered by my frank discussion. And that's certainly one way to describe me. And as they broke down, the top executive in the firm sitting next to this person uh, was offended that I would do something so fraught with risk and, and cause this situation that they told the planner to stop the event. They wanted, they wanted me pulled off stage. I was that close to literally being pulled off stage mid-speech telling a story that 99% of the people who hear love forever. You are never universally loved your brand is a unique search for people that get it, not an expenditure of energy about those who don't get it. And mm -hmm. that is okay. If you can accept that, then the nebulous thing called authenticity is in fact within your reach. Interesting. Wow. Well, as you said, you know, if you're going to do a thousand gigs, you're going to have, have uh, probably one where something like that happens, but uh, it doesn't mean maybe I need to work on my authenticity. I don't know what I've done in that regard. That would have, that would have affected me. Of course you get out and you do it again the next day, right? You're like, okay, got to go back and tell that story. And then somebody comes up and tells you that, you know, it changed their life or whatever. <laughs> Usually it's something like that, but not that day. And it's important that those things happen. If you care about learning and keeping your feet on the ground and being humble, and I can be confident as all get out, but I also believe in humility and those moments that make you humble, frankly, are golden. They're golden. Yeah. So what's the downside or the, the problem if we don't push ourselves to be more authentic, to remove those filters, to censor less? What is the downside of that? Well, I think the delusion is is the answer. I mean, a book before Live Hard was called The Ten Delusions, and it's just a simple book about relationships. And one of the reasons I wrote it and focused on delusions that we often have inside uh, relationship partnerships, marriages, romantic relationships, is because my observation for years had been uh, first as a professional life observer, and then increasingly just as a, a observer in general, is that we don't or can't deal with certain things. And so we contort reality. Delusion is one way to talk about those things to cope with it and deny it. Some version of those things better. 
And I believe that a lot of people see opportunities to, to chase better fit and take those risks. They see opportunities to step up and improve their relationships and their fortunes at work and don't do those things because they don't want to take the risks. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in others, some combination of that stuff. And they don't want to sit around going, I'm not good enough and let me dwell on this. And so they use delusion. They, they say, you know what? The time's not right. You know what? I'm going to get a new boss in two years and I know that. So I'm going to wait because that's going to be a better opportunity or a million other creative, spontaneous things we will fill in the blank with to avoid taking principled risks on our own behalf. Uh, and that's, that's a form of delusion. I think it's actually extremely common. And, and so people, instead of being authentic, very often just uh, live with the plateau, Jennifer, the plateau that so many people in their thirties hit. I'm a, I'm days away in April, I'll be 50. And people in my observation now being at that age and really having a chance to explore and know people above me and, and such visibility to people below me because of courses and such, I hear from so many people. And increasingly they're younger than me. And what I learned is that the twenties is full of um, most risks people want to take. And the thirties is a much, much smaller percentage of people. The vast majority of pros plateau and then a smaller group in the forties. And most are never peaking in their fifties and sixties. I'm going to try hard to peak in my fifties. Watch me. Having said that, most people are in their thirties and they got the second promotion. Just tell me if you can remember someone you knew that sounds about like this. And they went to school, maybe even grad school. They got a good job, got the first promotion, kicked a little butt, got an award or two, gave some presentations, second promotion, 34 years old, bigger salary than they probably thought they could get. And at that point, the stress and the work associated with growth and learning, which is real, gets to be something that go, I can take a break. I deserve to take a break from that. And at the same time, they're really piling on with things that other normal, other things people, normal people like to do. Relationships and all the work that come with them, such as marriage, kids, and the time and money and stress that they represent. Oh, don't even get me started. And other obligations as well, but those are the big ones. A mortgage that's coming due every single month. How dare it? And there's the combined weight of all those obligations with the desire to not stress myself out voluntarily, which is what learning is, as much. And you know what? It's been two or three years, but I'm still doing well. I'm still a respected person around here. And the striving now looks like this instead of this. And well, getting relighting that fire, very hard to do. One of the biggest groups that I hear from uh, on different platforms and in person are mid-career people of this variety who believe they risk falling into that routine of it's good enough and they're worried that I've just described them without knowing it. And, and, and they say, thanks. I think you just kicked me in the ass and I'm going to go uh, get back on it. Thanks. So what are one or two things that you recommend that someone do who says, okay, you called me out. I want to do this, but I've spent years kind of crawling back in my hole. I don't necessarily know how to take baby steps out. What are one yeah. or two baby steps they can take? I would say first stop assuming that everyone, uh, views you like you think they do. There is always a gap in perception, how you view yourself versus how others view you. Sometimes that gap is different or size-wise is, is much different than you think it is. So you've got to go do the risky thing, okay? Uh, not inside the eval system where we're obligated once a year or twice a year, three times a year to do an eval. Outside of that, you've got to go find minimum two, minimum two people, meaningful exposure to who you are as a professional, that you respect, that you know will speak up if you empower them kindly to do so. 
that you're going to listen to because they're going to fill in that gap and you might like some of it and you probably will not like some of it either. And that's okay because you've got to understand the reality. Number one, number two, given that data, you got to ask yourself, where's the rust started to collect since I've been coasting a little bit? What's the new skill or two I got to get serious about? I heard about it. I know some people care about it. The ones trying to get the promotion to my level, I've neglected it. What's that skill or two? And then you got to find the, the workshop, the LinkedIn learning course, whatever platform you're into. There's so many options these days and embrace that thing we've been talking about for 30 years. That sounds cliche, but it's not. And it's continuous learning or today they say reskilling all kinds of things. But number one, go fill that gap. Stop assuming you know how everyone's viewing you or how the system is viewing you and do it informally and do it brutally and listen more than you talk. And then number two, figure out the skill or two that will kickstart you getting back on the growth path. That's, that's the simple advice. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of skills and LinkedIn learning, you have several popular courses on LinkedIn learning. What What is the most popular or what do people most want to hear from you about on LinkedIn it, learning? It, it varies. I've been so darn lucky, madam. You have no idea. I <laughs> hope I get to be associated with them for a long time. I've done 30 plus courses with them. They've been seen in nearly, you know, 200 courses, 200 countries, eight languages, you know, 30, 40 million people have watched them. And there's a new manager fundamentals course people love. There's also um, dealing with stress, dealing with unexpected change courses that they love. There's a lot of, he says, as he turns his phone off, there's um, courses on time management. I've got, I've got one. This one blows me away. I did an ad lib for 11 minutes using information I normally would share in person in a workshop or a classroom about managing time effectively. Hey, if I only had a couple of minutes, here's how I would, you know, 11 minutes, three things you should consider. It'll change how you view time. They recorded it one day on a riff and it became a, a multiple bestseller for them for quite a while. And I've gotten more feedback literally about that course than any other course. Um, I've got courses that a little get into your world, talking about HR, some onboarding things. Mostly I'm about uh, leadership teams, aspects of relationships at work. And you know, I can't say enough about them, even though I'm at a place where I'm growing into other platforms as well. They are my biggest home and they are amazing at finding great experts who are also great communicators so that learners like this don't have to think or try hard, can just watch and learn in a a very small number of minutes. So for anyone listening, if you've not checked out that platform, it's definitely worth your time. Mm -hmm. So as we move into this new year of 2021, what are you thinking big thoughts about? What are one or two things that you really think both for yourself and others we need to to really lean into in the new year and beyond? Wow, I I think you have to get serious, really serious about what your side hustle is. It was something for people with extra energy who wanted an extra buck to call a side hustle for several years leading up to the pandemic. Then the pandemic hit, which was in our lifetimes, the best example ever of, hey man, you've got your plan, but life's got its plan. And and when that happens, you better be ready. And here's a word that's been overused, but you better be ready to pivot. What is your pivot, your side hustle? And I know what that is for me. And it was really to refocus hardcore on the educational aspect of what I do, course creation, course creation. I love doing that. I'm going to stay that way for the next 20 years. Uh, I'll never give up speaking. Who could do that? But Mm -hmm. I'm really in love with making more and more courses. But now that I found that clarity and found my reaction to that situation, I've got to say the same thing to others. Yes, it might take time. It might take reskill. 
upskilling. It might take a couple dollars for training for sure. What is your plan? If you can't articulate it, then you better stress like hell for the next 12 months and get an answer to it because that pandemic is just a reminder. It's not the last distraction we're going to see. It's a reminder that your plan doesn't always go as you see fit. So next time it happens, you've really got to be ready. And the reason I'm so excited to tell people to take this seriously, I mean, really seriously, you should be reading books. You should be talking to people in other fields. You should be saving money, all the things soon to be possible entrepreneurs, for example, often do to get ready, you should be doing even if you're a secure professional right now, because you might not always be. And I heard from so many people over the years who really think about escaping corporate life in their own unique way. You did it one way, I've done it one way in their own way, but they're not sure the conditions under which, they're not sure when, they don't want to take the risks. But if you just listen to the prep that you've got to do for that, you know, curveball, you know, prep you've got to do, right? The, the, the talking, the training, the saving money, all those things, you also are putting yourself better and better into a position to voluntarily uh, sans a pandemic to go ahead and make the leap anyway and give yourself a chance. You know, when I talk about authenticity, I've got to tell all your listeners this, what do you want to be when you're 90 or whatever your your last few years might be, 60, 110, who knows? What do you want to be? Do you want to be someone who never failed miserably or someone that really tried most of the things you wanted to try? You got to think seriously about that. I actually wrote about it in the book. I really think you do. And there's some research out there with old folks who that tells us most people regret not living more fully. They don't regret, they don't sit around basking in the glory of never making errors. I avoided catastrophes. They would rather, to use the examples I'm using, know that they left corporate life, tried, lived half that dream, couldn't make it quite work and failed and went back to a, a maybe a better version, hopefully, of a corporate job. They would much rather go through that than never have tried at all. So the question then for anyone listening to this conversation is, where are you are you going to try? Stop saying it's not the right time because there's never a perfect time. It's no different than having kids. There's never a perfect time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Well, what is the message from Live Hard that you want people to take away so that they will go out and buy this book after hearing you talk today? Life is very, very short. What in the heck are you so scared of? Try, fail, learn, try again, and you are very likely to have lived a life that makes you content that you got the most out of it you possibly could. That's amazing. I have so enjoyed talking to you. People have not been able to see my face, but I've had a permanent smile on my face the whole time. I love your energy and enthusiasm and and your deep expertise on these topics. We'll certainly link up to all your books, including Live Hard, Thoughts on Living Fearlessly, Creating Success, and Embracing the Future. Love that subtitle. So people can get to know more about you, Dr. Todd Do It, as well as your LinkedIn learning courses and other places they can find you online. So thanks for joining me today, Todd. My pleasure. Take care. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 